This is the Constructionist Podcast, where we take ancient stories, the person of Jesus, current events and topics, and help you construct a new Christian worldview that's relevant and loving to those around you. I'm your host, Kevin Bates. I'm a semiotician and community builder looking at the signs of the times to build a better future together. You are tuned into the Constructionist Podcast, and tonight we are continuing our series on the Bible, what to believe and what to leave. So at the Constructionist, we encourage a worldview that's built on the principles of Christ. And in this episode, we're examining the letters of the Bible. Now, we are probably ruining the Bible for some of you as we talk about some of the old stories of the Old Testament like we did in previous podcasts, but now we're in the New Testament. A few stories, we went over the Gospels last week, now we're going over these letters, giving a perspective that might go against what you learned, maybe in Sunday school, maybe you took a class, maybe in your church the pastor taught something. We might be going against some of those things. So by doing so, though, we hope to offer insights and perspectives that will help you in your own journey towards a great, greater understanding of love and compassion for yourself and others. So we want to assure you that in tonight's episode, we are not fabricating anything, as many have done. Any information or ideas that we're going over tonight, we've researched, we've looked at, we've talked through, and if we're guessing, we're going to tell you it's a guess. Our goal is to provide an honest and authentic perspective on our examination. So we call this our thinking space where we present ideas and thoughts. And tonight we're making our best attempt to explain practical thoughts and theologies to live by. So if you enjoy the Constructionist podcast and want to support us financially, please follow the link in the chat or the show notes on the social media platform you're listening to and visit our give page. You can also support us through our Patreon page at The Constructionists. So your support will enable us to continue producing high quality content like we are tonight. But even more importantly, we wanna hear from you, engage with you, and we believe that through our interactions and discussions with listeners like you, we can continue to learn and grow together. So we value your feedback and your questions and your ideas, and we're excited to build a community around our shared exploration of perspectives called a communal hermeneutic. So please don't hesitate to reach out to us and let us know what you think. All right, Sherea, thank you for for joining. And Jake, thanks for joining. Tonight, we are talking about the letters of the Bible. Now, some people call these by big names like the Pauline letters or the Johannine letters, things like that, Peter's letters. But we're just talking in the letters in general. We're not going to go over very specifics on each one because we believe they're a category in the Bible. They're kind of a, an all-encompassing category. But first, we're going to talk about the structure, the structure of these letters. And honestly, I don't really have a grasp. Sharia has a better grasp on this. Sharia, would you go over for us who wrote these and why are they attributed to each one? I mean, you know, Paul wrote some of them. 
maybe mm-hmm. John wrote others, Peter might have written others, but there are letters that are attributed and then Hebrews is this mystery one. So why don't you go over who wrote these? Why are they attributed to certain people? And maybe like the purpose, like we need to find a purpose for these letters for us tonight. Right. So we're talking about the biggest chunk of the New Testament. We're looking at Romans all the way through Jude. Um, And most of these are attributed to Paul, the Apostle Paul, who we met in the book of Acts. Um, And then we've got others. There's Hebrews, which is anonymous. There's John, which or James, which is attributed to James, the brother of Jesus. Most of the time, Um, the Peters are attributed to Peter. And then first, second, third John are attributed to John. Um, So a few weeks ago, we talked about who wrote the Gospels and that, um, for example, the Gospel of Matthew wasn't necessarily written by the disciple Matthew, but rather it's written like in homage to Matthew or um, following Matthew's tradition. It's a way of... um, aligning that text with um, the values of that person or of their story. Um, And the thing with the letters, the epistles, is that um, we don't know for sure who wrote them. Um, We can make some good guesses and there are clues that can point us in the right direction, but the reality is we don't know for sure. If we're looking at the um, letters that are attributed to Paul, in many cases, it will say from Paul or it will end the letter with um, there's one where he says something like, look at what big letters when I write with my own handwriting or something like that. Um, Yeah. yeah. Um, So there are little clues that perhaps it was the Apostle Paul who wrote these. Um, We also know that it was traditional for someone else to do the writing while the author was speaking the letter to basically scribe. So there's also whenever whenever you say this or whenever I hear this, Mm -hmm. what I think about is the, the common Christian that is listening or the common listener that learned a certain idea that Matthew wrote Matthew, John wrote John, Luke Mm -hmm. wrote Luke, um, Paul wrote the, all the Ian's, um, so it becomes deconstructionist like when you take those names off. And, and I just want to know from your perspective, like when we start doing this, when we say this letter probably wasn't written by such and such a person, or maybe it was their disciple, or maybe it was somebody on their behalf, what does that do to the integrity of the letter? Do you think? I. It's fine with me, um, but I've gotten to a place where I'm comfortable with that. I can see how it would absolutely make someone uncomfortable. Um, How did you get to that place? Like what what gave you comfortability? I think some of it is like just acknowledging that the authors wouldn't have known that they were writing scripture at this point. They were just writing letters to encourage each other. Um, That really takes the pressure off of this having to be... um, what's the word inerrant, right? Right. Um, But then also like, I'm just not really bothered by the fact that this could be written by someone who admired Paul and wanted to um, 
continue in Paul's footsteps. You know, if this was a disciple, that means they're carrying on the tradition. And I think there's something absolutely respectable about that. I think so too. I mean, honestly, if I was knowingly writing scripture and I was like this person chosen by God, and I knew that on behalf of myself, that letter probably would come out fairly arrogant and fairly yeah. like almost like me centric. So, so it makes sense that they were just writing letters to the churches or writing letters about people um, instead of just knowingly like scripting, um, dictating like the, the words of God type of thing. Mm -hmm. um, I do think it's important also to remember that the letters are part of a conversation. So like, for example, with the um, first and second Corinthians, there are extra letters that we don't have or that we don't know about or that have recently serviced. Um, right. But we also don't have the Corinthians church's letters to Paul, um, that these were a two way conversation. And in most cases, we're only seeing one glimpse of one way of that conversation. Yeah, definitely. So let's go over first. Well, um, step, can we step back for one second? Yeah, yeah. Is, is meaning in the fact of who wrote it and when and how, or is meaning right. in the purpose or is meaning in the ethic or the, the morality is trying to show? And so I, I would argue the meaning is behind the author's intent of of ethic and moral in the story. And so mm -hmm. whoever it's written by, we have we have no idea mm. at all. But like the life of Piism, it's a better story. So we're just going to attribute this to Paul. Because like, Hebrews has no named author, right? Right. Right. John right, we have absolutely no idea with Hebrews. John is this, this random figure that we know nothing about. And so how there's there's not much more meaning besides how we take it and how the author was trying to put it. Right. I, th I think you could use the word heart, the heart of the letter. When you look mm -hmm. at the heart of the letter, your perspective changes a bit where instead of the, the letter of the law, you're looking at the heart of the law. When you look at the letter of the letter, um, you can get yourself in a lot of legalistic trouble uh, when it comes to these. And a lot of people have, and I think that they've misused and abused not only the scripture itself, but people with the scriptures. And, and I think that um, honestly, looking at the heart of the letter more, and we're going to cover a little bit more of this, but looking at the heart of the letter more than the, um, than the letter of the letter itself. I wanted to just make mention a couple of things where we have an order of Paul's letters that are different than the order that is in scripture. And so the traditional dates of these letters or how they rolled out or the intention of when they were supposed to be written or who they were addressing while they were written falls into different date categories. So 
you have Galatians, which is actually attributed first, that that was the mm -hmm. first letter, then the Thessalonian letters one and two, then the Corinthian letters one and two, and then Romans. So if you see it in that order of things, like a very primary letter to Galatians, and then Romans, you see Galatians and Romans are very similar. So maybe, probably, if the same person wrote it, then Romans would have just spun off of the already written material of Galatians and, and possibly even copied some of the words and ideas that are in Galatians. So if you can see it that way, that you have a primary letter that doesn't address everything, but a more robust kind of similar letter, um, maybe the churches were dealing with the same ideas and the same problems and such that were being addressed. And then you have Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. So that's how the order of things goes. But then 1 Timothy, take a break, then Titus, and then 2 Timothy. And so, so a lot of people read the Bible just straight through thinking that it's a chronological order of things. But what I'm what I'm trying to make a point of is in the spans of like in a traditional dating of the 20 years that these letters were written, that a lot happens um, not only in our minds and maturity, but also in society in 20 years. So if mm -hmm. you think about what happened to you 20 years ago when I was 31 compared to what I experience now at 51, is much different. So, so looking at it, that's even more important to look at because things change, society changes, culture changes, people get better, or worse, you know, like they, they just, the choices are made, you know, that have to be addressed at different seasons and different times. So uh, that, that order of things needs to be considered. Um, but like okay. the Paul letters, they were, the reason why they ended up in the Bible like they did was they were already like traveling around, especially the first and second Corinthians or first and second Thessalonians. They were already traveling around as a group separate from any other scripture. So they weren't traveling around with the Torah. They weren't traveling around with right. any of the gospels were much later. So right. they hadn't been written later. yet. Yeah. So like, like some of these letters are pre gospel and they're pre even like maybe even well, pre like be, say again, all the letters would probably, be yeah, all the letters would be traditionally in their traditional dates, pre gospel, but the, but definitely the time frame that they're talking about and the events that they're talking about are pre-written gospel. And, and so there's some churches that only take the Pauline letters as the word of God. There's churches that stick strictly to just Paul's letters and nothing else as the word of God. Um, I don't think that's a healthy approach to scripture, but but there's some that that do for that very reason that the gospels were written too late too many years after christ these show a more reality to the life of christ because they're like traditionally closer in writing um i really liked what you said shreya that the authors didn't know that they were writing scripture mm -hmm. i think that's a really important point 
Yeah, I agree. Yeah, totally. Totally. Um, I do want to point something out. So you were talking about the order that the letters were written in and that the, the way they appear in our Bible is not chronological. Um, the way they appear in our Bible is longest to shortest. So it's grouped by author and then it's longest to shortest. Interesting. So that really doesn't tell us very much about the cultural context or what was going on. Yeah. Maybe Romans needed a little, the Roman church needed a little more oomph. <laughs> yeah. Read this one first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. That's interesting. I wonder if that was just a natural placement. Yeah. I, I don't know. You know, um, you know, when you're filing paper, you know, when you're filing paperwork away. <laughs> right. They could have been alphabetical, but no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So talking interesting. about author authorship and, Paul specifically, um, there is a theory going around that there are multiple mm -hmm. Pauls. And right. it's funny, Kevin, you said Galatians mirrors Romans. Um, yeah. The, the only thing it doesn't mirror in is, is the take on the Roman Empire. Mm. And so right. Romans has a very pro-empire stance. So like in Romans 13, it talks about, mm -hmm. oh gosh. Out, like Chris. God put the emperor in charge. So obey the emperor, follow all the rules, be a good citizen. Mm -hmm. And then Galatians is kind of this anti-empire stance. And yeah. so, right. And you also, I think it's maybe in the Corinthians, but um, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the spirit. Yeah. And, and that is very much a political anti-empire statement. Even, mm. even Paul saying, uh, Jesus, son of God. Um, mm -hmm. that was a, that was a title for the Roman emperor. And so, uh, when Paul writes that, I don't know if that's actually in Romans or not. Um, but the, the idea is that, that our ruler is, is Christ, not, not the emperor. And so, um, but Romans shifts and then it turns into this very, mm -hmm pro pro roman pro um assimilation and so an idea is that the second paul was was writing so the church could get out of the persecution mode and into more of an assimilated life hmm. interesting well, let's go over the book of Hebrews specifically, because I think mm -hmm. that that's, that's an important book to cover, because traditionally that is attributed to Paul, but you know, of course us three would probably disagree with that. Um, some people say Barnabas wrote it. Some people say Paul wrote it, but some people say Priscilla wrote it, Priscilla and Aquila type of Priscilla, that, that mm -hmm. she wrote it. And and I find that the most compelling. Um, but one thing that we know about Hebrews is it's a very detailed, like, copy of Paul's style. So there's a Paul style that's copied that they can tell has been copied within the book. It, it's not a naturally flowing Paul style. He wouldn't have written this way. But the things that are buried in the letter um, basically are, are just kind of a mimic, I guess you would say. 
and and more just polished, I guess, and eloquent than really any other book in the New Testament. So it so unless Paul went back to school um, and learned how to write better and different, uh, this is this is not Paul's letter. So I don't know why people have just buried this in Paul's you know list. Um, maybe just with ease and the easiest, I guess, answer would be Paul. But Shreya, why do you think Priscilla? I want to know your thoughts on that. Oh, I don't know that I ever even said Priscilla, but I do think it was a woman. Oh, a woman. Okay. Um, All right. Simply because it's anonymous and, you know, until what, maybe 100, 200 years ago, if you wanted to get something published and you were a woman, right. you went anonymous. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I would definitely say that the the person, the authorship of it, um, definitely, definitely is teacher status. Something I remember from yeah. my Greek class, like Paul's letters are are generally pretty average Greek. Mm -hmm. Hebrews is hard to read because the Greek is just so perfect and high level. Like this is somebody who really knew the language well, um, and that makes it a challenge for translators. Was Priscilla Paul's teacher? Uh, I don't remember that. Yes, that's in uh, Acts. I remember she and Aquila Ananias. taught Apollos. Oh yeah, Ananias Apollos. <laughs> Ananias Say that one more time. Rescued Paul, and he was like dying inside of a road right yeah yeah mm -hmm. okay mm -hmm. yeah uh, i think i think most most people like say paul wrote it is because some of the early church fathers probably said that paul wrote it and just because they said it makes it true right but it isn't grouped with the rest of the pauline order letters in length order no the... no it's not my my best guess i feel like is that it could be phoebe Okay, we, we talk about Priscilla a little bit, but but Phoebe we know carried the Roman uh, letters, mm -hmm. and so she would be rich in high society. So like, right, there's a good chance that she knew how to write better Greek than Paul. Uh, mm -hmm. I I I believe that she was a full Gentile. She wasn't even she wasn't a Jew. Apologize. <laughs> I need to turn that off eventually. My tech team needs to come over and help me with my computer. So <laughs> I, I would just say that because Priscilla was a teacher, like teacher of teachers. So mm -hmm. I would say that I would say that either a rich person that that was able to, you know, have a schooling of language and writing or a teacher of some kind that had a schooling of language or writing. Um, and the two people with, that we know from scripture that are like that is Phoebe and Priscilla. So I don't think that that's some conspiracy theory that people need to you know jump on uh, that we're saying that a woman wrote part of the Bible um, and some people just believe that, that a woman 
couldn't have written part of the New Testament right. or something. So, so that's just that's just you know kind of poor theology at best. Um, and conclusion. So let's jump from there because uh, now that we have a full handle on Hebrews, right? <laughs> let's jump from there and go over what people do with these letters. There's a word that I want to throw out that we want to teach our audience tonight, and that is the word anachronistic. Anachronism or anachronistic type behavior or speaking or conclusion making means this, that when you take something that is old, like like the culture of scripture's day, and you impose modern thoughts on it to draw conclusions. So for example, if you take our current medical system and our medical knowledge and impose it on the death of Christ, and the people writing about the death of Christ knew different things like he sweat blood and that's a medical idea and so the author of the text was trying to get across to us this medical phenomenon that he was bleeding and sweating in the garden of gethsemane that's an anachronistic idea of taking our modern science and imposing it on um on old thoughts or the water and the separated when they speared him in his side to showing that he was actually dead before the spear. Um, I, I, I think that that kind of like, I, that's, that's just a, what's called anachronistic where you take modern ideas and impose them on old, our legal system, taking modern legal transactional defense offense type exchanges, prosecution versus defense type exchanges, the actual behavior of a judge, some of them are very similar. But to say that it is a full, you know, exact copy of the way they behaved back then and to draw conclusions to that, that's anachronistic. But you can also do the same thing in the opposite way where you take old ideas and you impose them on modern thinking and draw conclusions and so if you take something that's ancient and impose it on our modern lifestyles that then is the same idea where you are your conclusions are anachronistic so like for example women are to remain silent in the church or women are to pray with their heads covered. If you took those scriptures and you impose them on our modern society in church, that would be anachronistic. There were certain reasons, views, cultural, cultural implications, ideas around why that was written that really, honestly, we know some things, but we don't know it all. And so we don't really know exactly what was going on, but we know generally what was going on. So we could come to conclusions that that scripture was for that cultural time and place. But we get in trouble when we say things like this, that women can't be elders. It says that in scripture back in ancient times, 
But then the question arises, can women be elders today? And there's many, many, many churches that are have imposed certain scriptures on women and men that those that that gender specific task or gender specific giftedness they've imposed that on one gender men but they've also imposed certain ideas on a certain gender women where we take ancient scriptures of like what women and children right that that women cannot exercise authority over men so we put them with the children right so those kinds of those kinds of behaviors is what's called anachronistic um the theology of divorce has over time become very anachronistic so so for example if a divorced person is completely shamed can't serve in a certain leadership capacity they're not you know a whole person or they're a divorced person and they carry that shame around like almost like a marked a on their forehead that's anachronistic because in the scriptures it tells us also that we are fully restored in christ new clothes new creation new everything in christ so in Christ, we are new, but in society, in maybe culture, we're not considered new, but in Christ, we're considered new. So how we treat people in the kingdom, the church, is supposed to reflect how Christ treat, treats us on earth. And so, so what we do oftentimes with anachronism as well, is we then ignore divorce because we don't want to shame people then we go the opposite way and ignore divorce when honestly the scriptures are about reconciliation and restoration so to acknowledge somebody that is divorced right in the theology of divorce we can fully install them restore them help them feel think and perceive that they are a whole person by putting them in roles that they are a new creation in christ that otherwise culture wouldn't maybe back in the day have accepted them as a whole person but we as the church can accept them as a whole person the problem is we've done the opposite so so there is certain things in scripture that are anachronistic women can't wear jewelry adorn their hair things like that and a lot of them have to do with gender a lot of them have to do with female gender um and that's unfortunate that that the church over a long period of time have imposed a certain set of i guess oppressive theology on women do you guys have any other like thoughts on that because i just wanted to uh to give an introduction to that and then let's go for it um yes lots of thoughts on taking old concepts and putting them on today's time but also how, how picky and choosy we are about what concepts we bring forward. Um, mm -hmm. It would make sense if you took the whole bundle and put it on today. Right. But there's a filter, and I think it's the filter of, of it's a filter of control. Yes. And so if it doesn't match other spheres of society, so like, um, if one text says for you to get married as soon as possible, marry them off young. And then, but another text says 
to stay single as I'm single or Jesus was single. So, you know, the, the idea is that stay single, but in the church mm-hmm. culture, it, it is almost sinful to stay single, especially. And so you're not, your quiver is not full. You're, you're not, uh, you're not producing yeah. offspring to be Christian warriors basically. And so mm-hmm. it's, that has more to do with our understanding of expansionism than, than, um, than theology. And so we take a proof text of what we think should be the right thing. And then we go forward. Um, yeah. Women and I think other races are what is targeted the most. And so uh, white men have been in control of scripture for a long time. Trey, let's hear from you. You're, you have been under the system of oppression towards gender for a long time. I mean, your mm-hmm. whole your whole raising um so not not from her parents but from not from her parents but from the church no but definitely from my my church origin yeah yes yeah yeah tell tell me about that like Mm um yeah i mean are you looking for like experiential things sure like just just because i want to hear from you because i'm Mm -hmm. a middle-aged white male right that has white maleness and I need to just hear from you for a moment. Just to right. speak into it. Um, yeah. One of, one of the things coming up for me. So I, I taught at a Christian school for seven years um, yeah. and I was the Bible teacher for six of those years, high school Bible. Um, and something I am so grateful for because I know that this is that I never had any male students try and challenge my ability to teach the Bible. Um, mm-hmm. And I am grateful for that, but also sh- should I have to be grateful for that? Like that feels like a bare minimum, you know? Um, something else that I think about when I was in seminary, um, I went to, are we naming names? You don't have to name names. Okay. Um, I went to a very conservative seminary, um, and I remember we had, it was almost a debate. It was meant to be a discussion, but we were as a class talking about whether women should be allowed to be in, I think on the elder boards was the primary question. And we were looking at these texts as they come up in, um, the epistles and I think there were maybe three other women in that class with me, probably about at least a dozen dudes. Um, and what I wish I had had the awareness and the words to say in the moment was that. Um, not a fair fight. When it's not because like I have to my very existence is on the line, my experience, you know, whereas for the men in the room, they could have this conversation as though it were a hypothetical or an abstraction because it didn't directly affect them. 
Um, and in that kind of a context, because it's a theological debate, right. you have to keep your cool. You can't have any emotions whatsoever. You just have to bring the logical facts mm-hmm. while you're debating your own experiences and existence. Yeah. And yeah. what's hard, especially with, um, with translations of scripture as well, um, the translators change names yes. in the text <laughs> in order to prove their point, especially for women in right. ministry. Right. Mm-hmm. So, Justice for Junia. Yes. Right. Just, uh, Junia. Or, or Junia. Junius and Junia. Or sometimes Junia. Justice, you're, you're right. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so depending on what version you're reading, um, Paul names, maybe Paul, Paul names a female apostle, which that if you agree that there was a female apostle, it completely changes the theology of eldership because they were the head Mm -hmm. elders of the church, Mm -hmm. the church universal at that point. And so if you can agree to that, and if you see that there is a female apostle, then everything else has to fall in line with that text. And so many translators have changed that female name in the original to a male name in the translation. Mm -hmm. And so it just keeps going. And so that's, that's let's get into it. Let's get into it a little more specific Um, because there's might be some people that don't, they're going, what, there's a difference here. Like, why would you, why would you treat men and women differently? The church for many, many centuries have, have created a system of leadership and inclusion and participation that is unequal between men and women. And what's normally said is men and women are created equal for different roles. And so it has to do with the roles and it's never the roles of men. It's always the roles of women in the church. And so there's specific definition. Men can do anything, but women can only do certain things up to a point. Like there's a certain point you could go all the way to the top, except the very top. And that has to do with eldership. Now, most churches that are, they're like, like con, contain a conservative label still allow. I mean, there's lots of churches that allow women to do many, many things except eldership. So there's, there's many churches that allow women to express giftedness all over the church in any way, fashion, form, but can't carry the title like pastor. They can carry minister. They can contain or, um, uh, hold the title, um, uh, uh, like director director. or some director Mm -hmm. or something like that, but not the term pastor. Deacon if we're getting real biblical. Right. So pastor can be translated as elder or shepherd. And so, so that word is only reserved for men in, in many churches. Um, You have different views though, that I just gave kind of a rough outline, but there's words for this. And, and the word for uh, only certain roles for women, women can hold certain that they were created equal for different roles that's called complementarianism and the other side of that spectrum is a mutualist or a egalitarian so somebody that's a mutualist egalitarian 
believes that there's no distinction in in either gender or uh, participation or role. So so there's no limitation on a, what they call ecclesiastical participation. This only has to do with what happens in the church, like what has happening between the four walls of the church building. And many times it only has to do with what happens on Sunday morning on the stage for 45 to an hour minutes on the stage at a certain time during the service women can pray women can do devotions women can read scripture women can lead worship I mean, women can do some, all these in things some. in some in many in many <laughs> except that 45 minute slot where the pastor quote unquote delivers the sermon so so in extreme what i would consider myself an extreme mutualist egalitarian that's what i would consider myself is that men and women are equal and they can serve in any role of the church. I can biblically back that up, culturally back that up and look at anything that is said in scripture and say, that is said for this time and place and this manner in this cultural setting. Then you have like the, you have like kind of a moderate and that moderate kind of waffles okay, yes, they're equal, but not in America. We can do that in China, but not here in America because it's not culturally appropriate, right? So they look at cultural appropriateness and there's a lot of pastors that are egalitarian that are some of my friends and that I, that have mentored me over time. They would be a, a kind of a moderate. And then in the complementarianism, you have extreme complementarianism and then you have moderate complementarianism so most of what i was talking about is moderate complementarianism but there's certain movements that have extreme complementarianism that that they say women can't speak from the stage in any way they cannot hold a microphone from the front so so that would be an extreme complementarianism but we're only talking about ecclesiastical type positions. Now, the church is notorious for answering the questions the world is not asking. And so so the world is not, honestly, the world is not even concerned about what's happening between our four walls. They're just looking at us going, you're a bunch of idiots. But the, the problem is, is the church has had a definite influence on our culture where we see that men and women still in society today are still not equal in many facets of our society. And I would say that that comes from the Protestant experiment, that comes from the establishment of the United States of America, that comes from how our laws are written, our opportunities are given, and how life is just playing out because many, many, many people express their cultural identity from their spiritual uh, experience. And so men and women, women can't, so, I mean, where did, where in the world did women, a woman can't be president come from, right? Unless it came from a church idea and that whole inequality of spirit that's buried in spirituality. So those are the differences. And that's why we bring it up. All of that is concluded within the epistle letters of the Bible. All of those ideas that I just talked about are buried within, not even buried, they're just right there to debate and talk about in, in Scripture. 
I think it's time for the church to be honest, honest with scripture, like we're trying to be in the constructionist podcast, but it's time for us to be honest and not only just like give kind of a, you know, hat tap, you know, and say, yeah, we're going to have a, a, a woman elder because, you know, we, yeah, no, it, we need to expressively be like proactive in raising up into leadership roles and into um, ecclesiastical positions to change that dynamic, which I believe then can influence culture um, in a, in a, in a very impactful way. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I've been, I've been pro female in leadership for a very long time. So this is not a new, new thing for me. An example that we have, like, that I just kind of learned about, uh, was Beth Moore. Yeah. Mm. In an ultra conservative circle, uh, she would never say that she was preaching, always just teaching from the front or doing Bible studies. Like hers was Bible studies. I mean, I think now talking to her, I think she's, she's like, well, I just said that so people would be less offended mm -hmm. by what I was doing. And then on Twitter one day, uh, one of her, one of her pastor friends was female, said that she's preaching on on Easter morning, and Beth Moore came back and said, "Me too." And so she affirmed that she was preaching, and she completely got thrown out of a movement because mm -hmm. because she was in an ultra conservative movement. Um, I. I that is breeding out, I think, to that movement, even allowing, because they're losing a lot of their women because she had a lot of power. Yeah. Mm -hmm. of power. And she, and she's right. Um, she can preach and teach and do whatever, whatever she wants to do from the stage, as long as she's called to that. Well, and there's a lot of men and women in in this debate in this subject on both sides of these camps that that in the complementarian camp they're trying to hold up something that i think is just a a tradition most people don't even know where this theology of ecclesiology comes from they don't even know they don't even like they don't even know the epistle letters and then the then kind of like that basic default of creative order, created order in mm -hmm. Genesis, you know, well, you know, God created man first and then woman is the helpmate that default into created order. Most people like are that are trying to hold up these traditions. Don't even, they, they don't have scriptural like right. reference points to these things. Even they, they, they just believe in the idea of the slippery slope. Yes, that that something. Yeah, if a woman preaches, then next is whatever you know. So like, we can't prove from from scripture. There, there's there's nothing mm -hmm. to prove that women can't preach or teach. Right. Or hold Trey, you got any more for us? You're the one who experiences this right. fully. I know. And I've also been in this community for almost 15 years. So. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like, could you go anywhere else right now? In my thinking, I'm like, oh, my no. goodness. 
Nijay Gupta. Um, that was mm-hmm. one of one of your professors, right, Jake? Did you have Nijay? Mm-hmm. You had Nijay. He says something really interesting that I that I do I do love what he says about that default created order out of Genesis. Um, Genesis one, just to be explicit, like detailed again, Genesis one says that men were created or, or Adam was created and then Eve. And there's something to that created order that because that is in an order, men are supposed to like be in charge ultimately. Um, and I really do love what he says. He says here, men and women are not related as differentiated beings in terms of status and function. Both are fashioned in the image of God. We see that in Genesis later on in chapter one. Not Adam, then Eve, but both reflect together God. So both of them are created as as a duo, right, type of narrative mythology duo, that 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 myth is myth in the literary sense, that idea is a, they are created so in the image of God and God is is has all gender it's not just you know God is not a male God is all gender so like the Shekinah is a female expression of God so so both are reflected in God's image he says both are blessed and are given the responsibility of ruling the earth that's later in Genesis 1 2 both are given the fruit of the earth for food and enjoyment while they are distinguished according to two types and it does say male and female nothing in Genesis 1 distinguishes the two in their god-given identity calling or relationship to other parts of creation if all we knew of creation came from this chapter we would conceive of man and woman as equal partners and co-rulers on earth as the image of God. There's no statement of first made privilege, headship, or gender role. I really do love that because it kind of just brings to light that God's creation, male and female, expresses the full nature image of God. And it's not Adam's the image of God and Eve's the image of God. It's the whole humanity at that moment. Right. But also if we're looking at created order, I mean, that would mean that the animals should be in charge of us. Right. And then the plants in charge of them. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the ooze, the, uh, the, the, just the, the chaos would be in control of us, which I do feel like everything else. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That seems reasonable. (laughs) I I just think that it's uh, if we didn't, if we didn't um, just go over that a little bit, I think we'd be inadequate in our in our mm-hmm. discussion because that's that's a big theology um, to to yeah. The, well, the helpmate, um, you know, even in the book of uh, or not the the book the the is it a Hebrew phrase of the helper? It's mm-hmm. suitable. That's not even adequate. That's not no. an adequate translation at all. 
that's not even a tra- that's not e- even what it's supposed to i can't i can't right now remember what the translation is but i do remember in our genesis study then and we can go back and, and look at where we said that that's a total inadequate um uh-huh. inadequate thing i would say yeah because it's like a warrior right and and yeah and and i also would say it would be better translated as like an ally or an essential other not mm-hmm. a like like it would be how it's written let's just word it this way and then we can move on <laughs> how it's written is there's an unsolvable problem that eve is created as the only solution and so so if you look at it as well it's just you know adam's helper there's almost like a derogatory connotation to that but if you say that this is an ally that there's an insolvable problem that a likeness is created as the only solution that that's much different than helper or helpmate that's just i don't know that's the helper just is translated as do my dishes type of thing that's just crazy talk Mm -hmm. so all right wow we spent some time on that that's good though we needed to spend some time on that because we are still still to the day i hear it from stages but i also hear it in culture so this is this is kind of my filter when i look at the letters of scripture if it breaks the law of love then it's not for today period if it creates inequality then it's not for today if it oppresses others then it was not for today and can i change that because i'm saying it's not for today it wasn't for then either it's not for them or today if it's promoting a doctrine of sin greater than a doctrine of grace then it's not for then or today if it goes against the death burial and resurrection of christ then it's not for then or today either and so when jesus it's it's said that that there's no male or female um, Jew or Greek, Scythian, barbarian, that we are all created as one equal. I think that there's some reality to that that we need to uh, that we need to consider. And there has Let's to go over our way, last point. And there has to be a way of way to redemption. Absolutely. I think if absolutely if anything has anyone has a physical or an action item against them. Like if they did something right. wrong, if they committed a sin, or if they're a female, or if they're another race, um, in the church there should always be a road to equality. Yes. And so um, that's also part of it. What was your last point, Kevin? Go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to go over the communal hermeneutic. And but I was going to um, mention something that if it's connected to the death, burial, and resurrection of of Christ, then it's not for then. It, if it goes against the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, it's not for then or today. So many times uh, theologians will say things like, "Well, uh, communion, you know, is it, it's like like an ecclesiastical type idea." 
right? So they'll say communion or baptism. But you also have these other ideas like confession is connected to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Uh, repentance is connected to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Love your neighbor, the greatest commandment and the fulfillment of the law in the greatest commandment is connected to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So anything that is goes against loving your neighbor is considered sin. That would be considered a sin in, in Christ's on earth perspective. But then because the church has been very anti-same-sex relationships, very anti-LGBTQ, very anti-women, very anti-such things. They'll say things like, sin is connected to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And therefore, we need to hate, like, like Sharia brought up in our pre-work, we need to love the sinner but hate the sin. And that's impossible. You end up just hating the sinner. I think if your if your idea of what Jesus did is substitutionary or pays the mm -hmm. debt of sin anyway, right? Um, you come out with that theology of right, you'll, right. You'll never be good enough, right? And so I that's that's one reason that I, I reject <clears throat> substitutionary atonement is that there's no way to become good enough. Right. Well, but I do believe that sin is connected to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. I do believe that. And what is said about that is, as far as the East is from the West, do you remember? Our sins are not counted against us. In Christ, our sins are not counted against us. In Christ, in the death, burial, and resurrection, God doesn't even look at it. In our death, burial, and in, in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, our sins are like, like buried, almost said forgotten, almost taken care of. And so how we act in that usually is, well, I need to be like the sin police too, because God is connected to the death, burial, and resurrection. This is why Christ died. Christ died for you. Therefore, stop, you know, acting this way. And I do believe that people need to act in a way of loving your neighbor. And that's more important to God than anything else. And so we need to really hold on to that perspective uh, when, when it comes to, uh, when it comes to, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. All right. Communal hermeneutic. So our way forward that the constructionists have identified in our pre-work is how do we move forward if the church has notoriously answered the questions the world is not asking and misinterpreted certain scriptures and promoted them as toxic theology, therefore resulting in spiritual abusive practices. Therefore, evangelicalism has shrunk in exponential shrinking ways that we have lost so many people, 30% here, 30% here, 30% that the church is crashing. And the only churches that really are said to be like growing here in the last handful of years is politically charged churches in conservatism, 
what is our way forward? Because honestly, I think that the churches that promote things like we just said, uh, really eventually, you know, are just transfer growth. Honestly, new people are not coming to Christ or people are being baptized into a certain doctrinal system versus baptized into Christ. And so that, that concerns me for the future of the church. There's been some alarms going off and, and we just identified a communal hermeneutic. So what's a communal hermeneutic? Hermeneutic is how you interpret scripture and how you're going to uphold that interpretation. And so a communal hermeneutic then is your community or your commune, right? The community of people that you stand with called the church that our pathway forward is to interpret and uphold an interpretation of scripture that we, we, for the most part, leadership wise and, and group wise can stand behind and uphold that we agree with. So some examples of communal hermeneutic are the Nicene Creed. There was a group of people that wrote the Nicene Creed and said, these are the things that we agree on and that we're going to uphold. Or the Reformation. The Reformation with you know, Calvin and Zwingli and Luther, and there was some basic tenets of the Reformation that they, they began to agree upon that we're going to uphold these tenets. So, so uh, let's talk about communal hermeneutic. What are the benefits of it? What does it actually look like for for church um, polity and and praxis? I think being able to focus on the things that we agree on rather than the things that we disagree on. Um, like once we identify the things that are truly important to get right, then we can relax about all of the other stuff and not have to police each other or ourselves so hard. Right. I'm going to write these down because this is real work in real time. <laughs> okay, Jake, what are some, some thoughts? Everything is bound to, to time and place. And so how we receive things and how we think about things um, depends on the culture that you're in. And your culture can change from, from mile to mile. And so Newburgh's culture is much different than Sherwood's, much different than mm -hmm. Beard's. Each of those cultures requires a different communal hermeneutic. And within those, even those towns and contexts, like your own location, but I think not, but, and you can take most of, of the new Testament of the epistles and say, well, those are culture and time bound. What is those, what, what do these ideas mean for me? And so like women in ministry, like how do we take that? Um, LGBTQ, how do we take that as well? And most of the concepts that we're dealing with today cannot be addressed by scripture. Mm -hmm. And so we have to take the, the moral and ethic that's there right. of love and grace and, and redemption and compassion 
and place mm-hmm. those onto how we deal with really complex issues today. I can I, I can more readily prove that homosexuality is is fine and good than anti in scripture. Mm-hmm. There's there's much there's much more like meat behind passages that talk about eunuchs and pederasty and right and what the what the Jews did with with um, Roman occupation when when homosexuality mm-hmm. was a thing that they were faced with than mm-hmm. some of the anti um, and so looking at looking at the whole of the of the tome of scripture rather than just picking and choosing what you want to things mm-hmm. have to be weighed and balanced and and not just proof text right my contribution to this communal hermeneutic would be i think there's needs to be a review process more often mm. mm-hmm. where i i mean evangelicalism 1942 national america uh, national association of evangelicalism or nae or nac um 1942 i mean you're talking 82 years ago 82-ish years ago a the group world has changed people, a lot yeah a group of people got years. together and wrote you know here's some really important things and i think that the heart of what they were trying to do is was probably like they had probably good hearts with what they knew at the time and they were trying to sort things through um but things get really stale and and when you don't listen to the spirit of god and you're just galvanized in traditions i think we run ourselves into a lot of a lot of trouble 82 years later i mean look at what's happened like 82 years ago in 1942 um, black people did not have equal rights and status in the united states of america for like coast to coast north border to border Mm -hmm. i mean if you think about just that in 1942 we were in war i just looked something up yeah Uh, women could not open a bank account in the u.s by themselves till the 70s till 1972. Mm -hmm. i mean think about that level of thinking there was obviously a law of some kind what did single women do like fathers or brothers or grandparents. Okay, mm-hmm. all right. There okay. But how about if you family. were out on your own and didn't have family? Good you didn't question. have a bank account? I mean, but, no. In, this, in 1960, it was allowed, but some banks refused to do it. So you had to find a bank that would allow you to do it? Correct. Wow. I'm sure there were some did, banks out there that did allow. If you think about like segregation, um, racial inequality, gender inequalities, that just just we're at war in 1942 um just think about just all of the context that was 1942 and that out of that emerges the national association of evangelicalism the evangelical tenants begin to be penned down as this is what christianity in america is so so i just think that there needs to be a review process to where we're thinking and continually like, okay, we're, we're not in that situation anymore. So what, what is new that we can start to address 
with what we know about scripture and begin to address it in a very positive, uplifting, healing way in our society today. And I think that that definitely, we need to engage that. And that's why I love studying with the two of you because it's always just new for me and refreshing, continually just turned over in my brain of like, wow, I didn't know that about scripture or Shrey will bring something up and say, uh, usually Shrey, you bring up stuff that I've never heard of. And then I go, <laughs> why haven't I ever heard of that? And then I'll dig around, you know, this next week and go, okay, I need to find out more about that. And then I'll read an entire book and I'm just buried and doing a deep dive. But I think the review process because honestly, in the 15 years that I've been a pastor of this single church, and then eight years prior to that, I've changed dramatically mm -hmm. over those 23 some odd years of just the last two ministries that I've been a part of dramatically changed. Yeah. I think and I think what goes along. Good, oh. but... <laughs> Go ahead. What goes along with that review process is also being willing to acknowledge that things have changed and that yeah. we're not living in the same world that we were 15, 20, 30, 70 years ago. Yeah. Um, I, I do think that the church is a little stuck in, in that thinking. Well, I think the lack of review process or, or just a continual like evolution of, okay, how are we approaching this? What do we do with this? How do we express Christ's heart more in, these subject matters when you ignore when you turn a blind eye to it and just say no i'm not going to look at that for so long you end up a christian nationalist you'll all of a sudden wake up one day and and all of a sudden you're you you're not you're not like really reviewing okay that's not the way we need to go we need to go a different route than christian nationalism um or or you know, our response to like Black Lives Matter is like white fragility and reacting out of our white fragility and becoming even more separated and more oppressive because of our reaction. There needs to be a, a thoughtfulness and a just a review and in, like an intuitive review of am I expressing the love of neighbor? Am I expressing the greatest command of Christ? Am I expressing Christ's heart? Okay, let concluding thoughts because we have to conclude because we're we're long today, but we got to yeah. conclude. Any expressive uh, thoughts to to close us? I, I think the communion hermeneutic was was a good closer. That was where we need to land on. Good. Trey, mm -hmm. any concluding thoughts? Nope. Okay. My concluding thought is we need to continue to work hard to change, to be more like Christ, like the Bible continually tells us, to be more in the likeness of Christ. To be more in the likeness of Christ is to, what is the greatest command? To love our neighbor. What are we supposed to do? Make disciples of Christ, not disciples of some theology, not disciples of some opinion, not disciples of some cult, not disciples of some idea, but of Christ. And if we land there, and if we continually dig out how to do that better, I think that we will be, um, quote, successful 
um, in the kingdom and much fruit will be produced from that work. And that's our hope with the constructionists. So with that, Shreya, Jake, thank you so much for joining and participating. Really appreciate your thoughts. Good night, everybody. <laughs>